0: Okay, so we have a friend of our church coming to teach today. His name is Nick Harch. Harsh? Why did I say it that way? Harsh. That's weird. Nick Harsh. It's harsher than that. But uh, no, he's come uh, one other time to teach, and he did a great job. So did good enough to come back, I guess. So, all right. So I don't give know. A warm welcome to Nick Harsh here. <laughs> so I don't. I don't actually know. <laughs> if that's totally accurate, because uh, Matt had me on the schedule three times before the first time happened, so we'll uh, we'll save that for later for the, the final conclusion there, but uh, it's good to be with you again for sure. Uh, my name is Nick Harsh, and hopefully I am a person who doesn't live up to my last name. That's kind of the goal in life, is that I wouldn't actually live up to uh, my last name, so we'll see how that goes as well, but It's good to be with you guys again this morning. Um, I'm uh, just a little bit about me on staff with Cornerstone. I'll save that for later just in case I want it. Uh, I'm on staff with Cornerstone, work with the Salt Company, love working with college students. It's one of the biggest joys of my entire life. Like it's just really cool to be able to meet with people who don't know Jesus, and then to get to walk with them and and explain it. And so uh, we get to do that on on a college campus, you get to do that in your neighborhood, and so it's uh, really great to be with you this morning. But if you have a, a Bible with you, why don't you grab it and open with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. That's where we're going to be this morning and we're continuing in a series through Paul's letters to the churches in Thessalonica. So'll see if I can find it here. It's like more elusive than I expected. We'll give you time to find it as well. so that'll work well. First Thessalonians. And you guys have been working through a series in the book of Thessalonians looking at what does it mean to live in the present as people of the future. You remember that? We're living in the present as people of the future, and that is a reality that is true of each person here today. It's true of you, and it's true of me, that none of us have actually reached our our final destination. All of us are moving towards eternity, or... To quote Maximus from Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity. I've never actually seen Gladiator, but that quote is pretty incredible. What we do in life echoes in eternity. I have a friend who says it this way, life is short, death is certain, and what you do with Jesus will determine where you spend eternity. And I think for many of us here this morning, we understand that at an intellectual level. Like we know the right theological answers. The the difficult thing, though, is to live like it, right? To live now in light of what we know will be true then, to live in the present as people of the future. And Paul, in his letters to the Thessalonians, he's going to circle around this idea over and over and over, and he reminds the Thessalonians time and time again that what you see isn't always what you get. That we're actually moving towards a future hope that is waiting for us, and so we're going to be back in Thessalonians today. And specifically today, we're going to get an excellent example of what it looks like to live in the present as people of the future from the Thessalonian believers. That's what we're going to see today. Before we jump in, I have a story to share with you. Last time I was here, I think I shared that I've been married to my wife, Rachel, now for about two And a half years, two years, seven months, like two days ago, something like that. I only know that because we do this thing where we celebrate kind of like every month, and she reminds me how many months we've been married, which I wouldn't remember that otherwise. But we've been married just over two years, two and a half years now. Um, But there was actually a moment when we first started dating that I was very nervous that things would not work out. And the reason is because three weeks after we started dating, Rachel got on a plane— flew to China to share the gospel with college students on a missions trip. Clearly, I made a great impression, right? She's just like, see ya, I'm going to China. Okay, but that wouldn't have been that terrible, except that her team also had this rule that they weren't allowed to call or text people from home, except for during four different designated times. So basically every two to three weeks, they were able to call home which is terrible, right? That's like not the most ideal long-distance dating relationship situation. And so the whole summer I was spent wondering, like, is this girl going to forget who I am? Is she going to still be interested when she gets back? Um, Are we still going to be dating at the end of this summer? Those were kind of the questions that were running through my mind. And you can see why then those four moments or four calls were really big deal, Right? So you got four moments to make a great impression, to keep this relationship alive. And so during one of those four specific phone calls, I remember that, you know, Rachel, she reached out to me via email, which is kind of a weird way to communicate with somebody you're dating. At least that's what it felt like to me. But we scheduled a time that we would call one another. Worked out great. The problem was that the place I chose had really terrible Wi-Fi. Not a good move on my part. It had really terrible Wi-Fi. So I'm there at the moment that we're supposed to talk to one another. I'm in a spot. I don't realize the Wi-Fi is bad. I click the FaceTime app to try to video chat with Rachel. Kind of wait, 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 nothing, right? The call is dropped. So, like any love-struck boyfriend would do. You know, I try to dial again quick. I, like, reply again, wait, wait nothing. Finally, I decided, okay, well if I can't video chat with Rachel, then maybe we can at least talk on the phone and so I clicked audio call and waited while the phone rang and obviously was really thankful when, you know, Rachel picked up the phone and was like, "Hey, how's it going?" you know. This is going somewhere, I promise. You're like, "Why do I care about this right now?" <laughs> okay. <laughs> So we talked for over an hour, which was great. She shared about the things that God was doing in her life, and I caught her up to speed on everything that was happening back in the States. And eventually, though, that time, it it ran out. It was up. And so we said goodbye. I hung up the phone, and I waited until the next time that we could talk. Overall, pretty uneventful, right? Until two weeks later, when my dad dropped a text into our video or into our family group chat and, and said, why is our phone bill... $139 $139 more than it usually is, $139. I'm barely out of college. I don't have $139, okay? So he says, why is our family group chat? Well, it turns out that our, our carrier, Verizon, they, they didn't, or at least the one we had, didn't cover international calls, and so I ended up paying $2 a minute, $2 a minute to talk on the phone for over an hour with Rachel, do the math, $139. What's funny, though, about that story is that even... We've gone back and we've talked about this a ton of times. Uh, I didn't tell her for the longest time because I was nervous that she'd be upset. I was like that she would feel bad. But what's funny about that story is as we've talked about it over and over, we both have come to the same conclusion that if we were to go back and to do it again, we probably wouldn't change anything, right? I'd probably still pay $139 to talk on the phone with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. I probably would do the same thing again. Why do I share that with you? Because it's a simple story, but it illustrates a really powerful truth that the value of a message is directly proportionate to the one who's sending it, right? The value of a message is directly proportionate to the person who's sending it. I mean, think about it this way. You would respond to a phone call from your kids differently than you would an email from Auntie Anne's Pretzels offering you 15% off your next purchase of $20 or more, right? You're not going to receive those messages the same. One, it's like, delete. The other, it's like, how are you doing? You're not going to receive a letter from Tom Hanks or Taylor Swift the same way you would a high V ad giving you a Memorial Day sale on watermelon. Like, those are not similar messages. They're very different. And the same is true with really every single message that we receive that the value of a message is directly proportionate to the person who's sending it and that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul in verse 13 says that he thanks God constantly because the Thessalonians received Paul's message as what it truly was the very words of God so look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13, it says this, This is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. In other words, the Thessalonians, they heard Paul speak, and they realized that it wasn't simply a man-made message or a self-help tactic when Paul spoke he wasn't simply promoting his own agenda he was actually speaking on behalf of God and we see examples of this all throughout the bible where God used men to carry his message so let me just give you one other example in second peter 1 you don't have to turn there you can just listen but second peter verse or chapter 1 verse 20 it says this no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is really good news for you, and it's good news for me. We don't serve a God who is far off or distant. Instead, we serve a God who is near, a God who talks to us, a God who wants you and me to know what he's like, and so he's spoken to us. And what's true is that God has spoken to people in various ways throughout history, but the primary way that he speaks to us today is through his word, through the Bible. And so do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what it looks like to live in the present as people of the future? Do you want to hear from God? Then open your Bible and start reading because he's spoken to us. You see, the Bible isn't primarily a book about theology. It's not a cute instruction manual for how we should live, though we can learn those things through the Bible. The Bible is revelation. It's not what we think about God. It's what God has spoken to us about himself. And so if you and I want to live in the present as people of the future, commit to knowing God as he's revealed himself in his word. That's what eternal life is about in the first place, right? To know God, to know what He's like, and to be in relationship with Him. That's the future that we're moving to towards a perfect relationship with God. In other words, the reason that you and I should give our lives to understanding and knowing and meditating on this book is not primarily because it encourages you, though it does. It's not primarily because it helps you know how to live the right way, though it does. It's not primarily because it helps us maintain sound doctrine, though it does. All of those things are good. The reason that you and I should give our lives to knowing and understanding the Bible is because it's the very words of Almighty God given to you and given to me in order that we would know what he's like. And if the value of a message is directly proportionate to the person sending it, then there is no message in all of the universe more valuable, more sweet, and more precious than the Bible sitting in your lap this morning. You believe that? Here's a little bit more of a convicting question that I had to stop and pause. Do you live like that? Do I live like that? Right? Because I'll be the first to put my hand up and say that I know that intellectually but man, there are too many times where I live like other messages and other things are more valuable, right? Regardless, though, of whether or not you and I choose to receive the word of God as true doesn't change the fact that it's the very words of God. Regardless of whether or not you and I choose to live as if it's the most valuable message in the world doesn't change the fact that it actually is. And what a tragedy it would have been for the Thessalonians if they had received Paul's words, which are actually the very words of God, And just kind of brushed it off and never allowed it to impact their life. And what a tragedy it would be if that were true of us this morning as well. If we heard God's word, but we never allowed it to penetrate our lives. This is not a true story, but just imagine with me that tomorrow you were to wake up and you turned on the news, and there were two breaking news stories that were headlining. The first story was of a man who died from starvation, and the second was of a woman who died from thirst. So you wouldn't need to read any further to know those are two heartbreaking stories, but imagine with me that as they shared more details, you found out that the man actually died in his home with a fridge full of food and no physical things keeping him from being able to simply get up, go to the fridge, open the door, and eat. And then as you shared more and heard more about the woman, you realized that she actually carried a Nalgene water bottle with her in her backpack everywhere that she went. She had access to water. She just refused to take a drink. You would hear those stories and you would think, what a tragedy, right? What a tragedy that, that they both had access to the very thing that would give them life, that would cr- bring about nourishment, would save them. And yet they just simply refused to take it. And yet I know what is true of me often is that I do the very same thing with the word of God, right? The Bible is compared to spiritual food. It's been compared to living water and and spiritual drink. And yet it's so easy to move along life at such a rapid pace that we never stop to actually take what's there. That you and I were created to be in relationship with God, to hear God, and to obey God. And whether you realize it or not, your soul longs to hear from Him. And yet it's easy to get distracted, and rather than drinking deeply from the words of God, we go on with our life forgetting that the very words of life are in our backpack, or on our nightstand, or on our phone in our pocket, or on the bookshelf, right? And now you can see why Paul doesn't cease to thank God in 1 Thessalonians. He's like, I am so thankful that when you heard this message from God delivered by us, that you received it as what it really was. It was the very words of God. But the question that comes to my mind is how did they know, right? This guy named Paul shows up. How did they know that Paul's message was the words of God? And how can we know that? How can we know that the Bible that we hold is the words of God? How can we know that we should receive it as such? And there's a lot of different ways that we could answer that question. Throughout the whole Bible, there's over and over the the truth repeated that the Bible is breathed out by God, that the the Bible you're holding in your hands are the very words of God to us. But rather than looking around at different places, what I want to do is I just want to briefly give you four observations that we see in the text of 1 Thessalonians as to why the Thessalonians knew that this word was the very words of God and how you can know as well. Four reasons why we can know that the message we have today is the words of God. So you ready? The first one is this. There's a spiritual component. We've seen it already, but look at verse 13 at what Paul says, the very first, first uh, couple of words there. It says, we thanked, or we continually thank God. And it'd be really easy to read past that and to miss the fact that Paul is actually thanking God for the fact that the Thessalonians received the words of God as the words of God. Do you notice that? Paul's saying, thank you, Lord, that they received the words of God as the words of God. And that's because there's a sense in which God has to open our eyes in order for us to know that the words of God are the words of God. He enables us to hear. He's the one who helps us understand and God in his kindness and in his grace leads us to the truth by the power of his spirit. You see that earlier in 1 Thessalonians. I'll just read it for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse four, Paul says this, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. In other words, the spirit impacted not only the inspiration of the message, but also the delivery and the presentation and the understanding or the receiving of the message as well. And so how do we know that the message we have is the Word of God? Well, number one, there's a spiritual component that God opens our eyes to see it. And some of us here in the room are so comfortable with that idea, right? Because that's your story. Like if somebody came to you and said, how did you come to know and follow Jesus? How did you come to know that the words of God were the words of God? You're like, I don't know. I was just like there one day and I heard it. And then like God opened my eyes and just, I believed. And that's your story. Some of us here though, maybe are a little bit more analytical. And and that idea doesn't settle quite as easily on us. It sounds like circular reasoning. And if that's you this morning, I just think it's really helpful to acknowledge that even though Paul is going to thank God, that he opened the eyes of the Thessalonian believers. That's not how Paul argues for the truth of the Bible. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 17 where we get a a narrative account of Paul's uh, trip to Thessalonica, what it looked like for him to speak the message to the Thessalonians. So just listen to this. It says this, after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I'm not sure if that's the right way to say those, but they came to Thessalonica, much easier to say, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three separate Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. So reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is what he said. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. And so there's the first way that we kind of can know is, is there's a spiritual sense, which God opens our eyes, but there's also an intellectual component that, that Paul uses reasoning and yet he reasons with the mind and, and God uses that, that the message Paul proclaimed, the message that we believe is not one of blind faith, that It's a faith rooted in facts, and the Bible never presents spirituality and rationality as opposed to one another. In fact, Paul honors the Bereans because when they heard Paul's message, they studied it to make sure that what he was saying is true. And so there's a spiritual component, there's an intellectual component, but third, there's a social component. So look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 again. It says this, when you received the word of God, catch this, that you heard from us, You welcomed it, that you heard from us. So the message has to have a messenger. And the way a message is delivered often impacts the way that it's received. That doesn't mean that a message is true or false based on the way it's delivered. That's not what is true. Because it's possible for somebody to speak a message of truth with no grace to you. And it's possible for somebody to lie straight to your face with a smile, okay, But what I am saying is that for some of us, the way that we first came to understand the power of the gospel is because we saw it lived out in the life of somebody else. And in many ways, that was true for the Thessalonians. Listen to the way Paul describes his interaction with them. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. I think it's just a good reminder that the social component isn't enough for somebody to place their faith in Jesus or to believe the message of the Bible, but it often is enough to keep people from giving it a chance, right? How often do you hear people say, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites? It's like, that's a social component. It's like, they don't love the way that the message is delivered or the way that we live our life, right? So how do you interact with a person who wants nothing to do with Jesus? You love them the way that Jesus loved you, even when they reject it, even when they don't want anything to do with it, even when they don't care what you have to say. How do you break through the hardness? The answer is that they need to see you live your life for Jesus in front of them. Friends, the unbelieving world watches our life and in many ways that's gonna push them towards or away the message of the gospel. Most of your coworkers only know what Jesus is like by looking at your life. And so what's the message that that is, is sharing? What's the, your life telling them about the message of the gospel? There's one more reason why we can know that the message we have are, is the word of God and it's the way that it's impacted our own lives personally that there's a a life change component. Look, lastly, again, at the end of verse 13, it says this, "'You welcomed it, not as a human message, "'but as it truly is, the word of God, "'which also works effectively in you who believe.'" And this is one of the things I love the most about the Bible is that this book is living and it's active. It's a powerful book. It's been said that the Bible is the only book that reads you back, and that's so true, right? Right? That, that when you encounter the word of God in the Bible, that it, it changes you. So uh, imagine with me for a moment that you're walking along the side of the road and, and you see on the ground a piece of sheet music and next to it is a piano. That works out well. You know, there, Next to it's a piano and there's other pages of music on the piano. How would you know that that piece of sheet music belongs next to those other pieces of music? How would you know My first thought was you would look at the page numbers, but that's not the right answer, right? What would you do? You'd you'd set it up there and you'd play it. You'd see if the music matches up with everything else that is sitting there to be played. And the same is true for the Bible, that when you hold it up, you realize that it fits perfectly with the longings and the desires of your heart. That when you read it, it changes your life. When you spend time with it, there's deep satisfaction in hearing from God. No other book is like it. No other book has the power to change your life like the Bible. No other message can meet the deepest longings of your soul. And when you understand the value of the message, when it sinks in deeply, these are not just mere human words, but these are the words of Almighty God. The way that you receive the message is dramatically different. You stop asking, how does this book fit into my life, or how can I fit it into my life? And you start asking, how can I orient and shape my life to follow the things that are found in this book? And look at how the Thessalonians responded, verses 14 through 16. So they received it not as mere words of humans, but as what it is, the directly from God, and it says this, For you brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Christ that are in Judea. Since you have also suffered the same things from people in your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, they displeased God and are hostile towards everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And as a result... They are constantly filling up the sins to its limit. And the wrath and wrath has overtaken them at last. The thing that stands out to me from those verses is that when the Thessalonians understood the value of the message that they were receiving. It radically changed the way they live. Look at what it says. It says they became imitators of God's churches. They didn't just hear it, but it actually changed the way they lived. They started imitating other churches that were following Jesus. The message was more to them than just an interesting fact or a theological idea. It was a life changing reality, so much so that they were willing to suffer for the message. And that's what you see in verse 14. It says this, since you also have suffered for the same thing or the same things from the people of your own country, that they, they lived a life that caused them to stand out in such a way that they were willing to suffer for it simply because they were willing to be obedient to the message that Paul had proclaimed to them. It changed their life. It wasn't just a cool idea they heard that went in one ear and out the other. It actually radically changed the way that they live. And I think that's the kind of urgency that you and I need. Listen, if if the Bible is true and you and I truly hold in our laps the very words of God, then it goes without saying that the entirety of our lives should be lived under the authority of those words, right? That there's no sacrifice too great in order to live in obedience to what it says. And every moment of suffering that you and I endure on the path to obedience is, is worth it because... This world is not our final destination. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, and then I step back and evaluate my own life, right? Like, just said, like, this word is the most valuable thing that you hold. Like, you don't own something in life more valuable than the Bible that's sitting in your lap. Like, those are the types of things that we've been saying this morning. And then when I hear that, and I step back, and I'm like, okay, so... What does my life look like? It takes about three and a half seconds before I realize that I fall really, really short of everything that I just said. Right? That I don't live in obedience to God's word the way that I should. That I often treat the commandments of Scripture as good suggestions rather than authoritative. That I don't realize enough that God's word is the path to my joy. And too often I forget that the message of the gospel is the most beautiful and valuable and precious news in the entire universe. And as a result, I don't live in the present as a person of the future. I live in the present as a person of the present or something like that. And yet, that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? That our first parents, Adam and Eve, they ignored the word of God and they did their own thing. And ever since then, humanity has been inventing thousands of ways to turn down the volume of God's voice and to turn up the volume of literally everything else. We don't listen the way we should. We don't value the message for what it truly is, the words of Almighty God. And so what did he do? He didn't write the words with a bigger font though we can actually make the font bigger on our phone. He didn't add more exclamation points to try to get the point across. He didn't use more eloquent words and try to persuade us that way. Instead, he actually became the word. He dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life of obedience, and then he willingly died the death that you and I deserve. And as Jesus, the author of life, gave his life for you and for me, he cried out, it is finished. And with those three words, he declared that you and I can be fully, freely, and forever forgiven because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's truly the most beautiful news that you could ever hear in all of the world. No questions asked. And so the question that that I want to leave you with this morning is this, what are the things that keep you from hearing the voice of God through his word? What are the things in, in life that, that turn up the volume of everything else and turn down the voice of, of God in your life? What are the steps that you can take this week to, to change that specifically? My prayer this week is that we would receive the words of God as what it truly is, the very words of God, that we would live in the present under the authority of his word as people of the future who are made to be in a relationship with our creator, and that we would know him more deeply through his word, and that we would learn to love the sound of his voice this week. Let's pray together.